Let me invite you to take your Bibles and join us in the book of 2 Corinthians chapter 4. 2 Corinthians chapter 4. We prepare our hearts this morning to receive the Lord's Supper today. And we want to consider this paragraph in 2 Corinthians chapter 4 in preparation. You will recall the apostle writing to the Corinthians finds the Corinthians to be the worst church addressed in the Bible. There is no church in the Bible that has more problems, people problems, crazy sin problems, as does the church at Corinth. So if your church is named Corinth Baptist, maybe that's not the best choice of a church name, unless you're in the city of Corinth. So, uh, nonetheless, Corinth has all kinds of problems. Most of those are addressed in 1 Corinthians. Now, 2 Corinthians is the more pastoral, if you will, the restorative letter. He is encouraging uh, his hearers to uh, run to Christ, to love Christ, to think of Christ fondly. So, there's more of that in 2 Corinthians where we find ourselves today. So we're going to read these six verses, beginning in chapter 4. Therefore, having this ministry by the mercy of God, we do not lose heart, but we have renounced disgraceful, underhanded ways. We refuse to practice cunning or to tamper with God's word, but by the open statement of the truth, we would commend ourselves to everyone's conscience in the sight of God. And even if our gospel is veiled, it is veiled only to those who are perishing. In their case, the God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. For what we proclaim is not ourselves, but Jesus Christ as Lord, with ourselves as your servants for Jesus' sake. For God, who said, let light shine out of darkness, has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. I hope today that uh, these words would be of strong encouragement to you as you reflect upon the gift of Christ for your salvation I want you to note, as we read this paragraph, several themes will stand out, but one will be perhaps the most prominent, and that is this issue of light and seeing as a result of light. You'll see it in verse uh, 3, uses the phrase, our gospel is veiled or covered, therefore you can't see it. Uh, Verse 4 uses the verb blinded, blinded, therefore you can't see. Uh, He uses the participle from seeing the light, also in verse 4. And he concludes verse 4 with a reference to the image. Image, which again implies seeing. Uh, Verse 5, we, uh, rather verse 6 God said, let light 
shine out of darkness. And he has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Christ. So I want to just point out three things briefly before we share in the Lord's Supper together this morning. Uh, At least I hope, I intend them to be brief. The first one, we're going to flush quite a theological rabbit and we just got to go run him down. So we're going to. I want you to note, first of all, in verse 3, that those who do not see the gospel are perishing. Perishing. You may be of a mindset to believe that somehow all roads, spiritual roads, lead to the same destination. That is a particularly valid belief in our contemporary culture. But in fact, it has no basis in truth. It is only wishful thinking. It is only hopeful thinking. In fact, all roads don't lead to the same destination in eternity. They cannot because they are absolutely divergent. You can't be wrong and right and somehow end up in the same place. You just can't. The Bible declares that there is only one God. The world would tell you there are many. There is a part of the world that believes there is only one God, but they believe that their God is not your God. Therefore, no, there's no way to synchronize those two beliefs. Also, there are people who would claim that though their God is your God, they don't have to go to your God, who is their God, by means of the road that our God has laid out. That's a bit like saying that you can go east and end up west. I will tell you, only Aggies do that. You're not any Aggies, so don't do that. I say that facetiously, of course. Uh, You don't do that. You don't act like that. That's not wisdom. That's That's not right thinking. So those who who do not see the gospel, are not living. They're perishing. Oh, they're, they're physically alive. Don't misunderstand me. They're clearly physically alive. And they give the air that somehow they are vibrantly alive. That they, they, they laugh well. They live well. They enjoy life well. And yet the Bible says they, because they do not see the light of the gospel, they are perishing. It, it is not ambiguous language, verse 4. If our gospel is veiled, it is veiled only to those who are perishing. In other words, the, there are plenty of people for whom the gospel is either outright wrong or confusing or at worst hidden, not, not even available to them. And because the gospel is veiled, their lives offer no spiritual hope. They will enjoy their lives until they don't. They will enjoy their livelihoods until they don't. 
they will laugh and cry and hurt and just like everyone else they will live their lives until they die and then they will face the judgment of God and they will do so and enter into everlasting punishment they are perishing it's interesting that the apostle uses this word veiled we picked up that if you will that analogy in chapter 4 but it actually begins in chapter 3 go back to verse 12 chapter 3 uh, he indicates that we have a bold hope uh, verse 13 he contrasts the bold hope uh, with that of the hope offered by Moses Let, let's read this verse 13 not like Moses who would put a veil over his face so that the Israelites might not gaze at the outcome of what was being brought to an end. But their minds were hardened, for to this day when they read the Old Covenant, the same veil remains unlifted, because only through Christ is it taken away. Yes, to this day, whenever Moses is read, a veil lies over their hearts. But when one turns to the Lord, the veil is removed. Now the Lord is the Spirit, and where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. And we all, with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. For this comes from the Lord, who is the Spirit. Now don't let that language trick you up or confuse you. Let me remind you of this Old Testament reference. In Exodus 34, Moses has been on Mount Sinai with God, receiving the Ten Commandments, and he asked God for the privilege of seeing his glory. You'll recall that God does so. He reveals, he allows Moses to see the back of his, of his countenance, the backside of, of God, if you will, and his face immediately shines. The Bible says in Exodus 34 that Moses comes off of the mountain and because his face is shining, he puts a veil over it. Now, we might be tempted to believe one of two things about that veiled experience. On the one hand, we might think, well, the, the shining of Moses' face is offensive or it's hard to look at, therefore Moses veils his face to protect their eyes. Think of flashlight. Somebody comes up and shines a flashlight in your eyes. You're offended by that. You say, stop that. I can't, I can't stand that. My eyes won't stand that level of brightness. And you'd be right, assuming you have a good flashlight. You might think that's what Moses is doing is he's veiling the face because he's been in the company of God and they can't look upon that level of brightness. You might be tempted to think that's what Moses is doing in Exodus 34. But 2 Corinthians 3 says that's not at all what Moses is doing. In fact, 2 Corinthians 3 says what Moses is doing is he is putting a veil over his face because the shining of his face is going away. It's dissipating. It's declining. And so he covers the face so as to protect 
the image that he is still shining. You, you look at Moses and 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 you might be tempted to say, he's, he's, he's different. Well, you, you, would be, you would say that because the shining of his encounter with God is dissipating. So he veils the face, he protects the face so that you don't know. Now, we're very familiar with that. We wear masks today, right? And you cover the face. You don't, you don't know what's going on. You don't, you don't know if they're smiling, except when their eyes flicker, right? And we cover the face, and we don't really know what's going on. Um, we don't know how people are changing. We understand that. So a veil covers the changes, or the, in this case, the declining changes. The veil hides the lack of power or the lack of presence or the lack of significance. Moses wearing a veil gives the impression that he's still, if you will, under the aura of this experience with God. But Paul in 2 Corinthians 3 says he's actually just hiding the truth which is that, that what that was, that experience with God, is fading away. Again, think theologically about the truth here. Ultimately, you go to the book of Hebrews, and he tells us that the old covenant is now obsolete because of the new covenant which we're going to celebrate today with the Lord's Supper, the new covenant is not in the blood of bulls and goats passing away, but in the blood of the eternal lamb. It is a better covenant enacted with better promises and a better sacrifice. It is an eternal covenant. There is no reason to veil this covenant. Exodus 34 hides the diminishing value of the old covenant. So those who do not see the gospel today because the gospel is veiled by the old covenant are in fact perishing. Those who believe that the old way is the way, that the old way is the right way, that the old way is the only way, that the way of the law, that the way of Judaism, that the way of man doing right things, being good, that's the way of God. God wants us to be good. Well, he does. But he doesn't want us to be good in order that we would be declared good. He wants us to be good because having been declared good, we are now his children who aspire to please their father in doing good. Do you understand the distinction? We are not being good in order to cause our relationship. We are being good because we have a relationship. So those who do not see the gospel are perishing. Those who long for the old covenant are perishing. Those who believe that the way of Moses or any other way that you might come up with is the way to God, are in fact perishing. Let us not 
fool around with the notion that somehow these people are okay, they're going to be okay, that God is going to be benevolent or merciful. In fact, he is not. Unbelief in the Old Testament is punished. Unbelief in the New Testament is punished. And unbelief in the life to come is punished. If we veil our gospel, we leave people to perish. We must understand that and take it seriously. There is no other way except the way of Christ. There's a second thing that we see here in verse 4. He says that those who do not see the gospel have, in fact, their minds blinded by the God of this world. Let's read it again, verse 4. In their case, the God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ. Now, that's an interesting phrase. Their minds are blinded. Normally, when we think of sight, we think not of the mind, but we think of the eyes. And we should, right? So, what does this mean, that their minds are blinded? Well, that's clearly a reference to understanding. Their minds are blinded. We would, we would get that. That's not difficult. They, they don't have understanding. Now, it doesn't mean that they don't see. I thought of an illustration this week. Couldn't get my hands on this. I couldn't get away from this illustration, so I'm just going to try to, try to picture it for you. I thought about bringing a carburetor and placing it right here in front of you, a carburetor. And I might ask the question, how many of you know what this is? Now, there's a, there's a percentage of you who have no idea what a carburetor is. And if you're under the age of 35, you, you will never need to know what a carburetor is. So never, don't worry about it. They don't use them anymore. But they did. And in the old days, a carburetor uh, mixed oil, uh, rather gas and oxygen. And the reason your car actually ran was because the carburetor was adjusted correctly and so forth. It was, it was the piece of equipment that blended gas and oxygen. So you might say, well, that's a, that's a carburetor. And with your eyes, you could look at that and you could say, that's a carburetor. I recognize a carburetor. I know a carburetor. That's a carburetor. Now everything's fuel injected, so you don't have to worry about it. But I might ask you a second question, which is, do you understand a carburetor? Do you understand how it works? And there'd be a sizable percentage of us who would say, I have no idea how it works. I don't know how to... I don't know how to make it work better. I don't know how to make it work differently. In fact, I don't even know how to measure how it works, except that when you turn the key, it cranks. That means something's working. The carburetor's working. I remember one time back in the day, someone in my family was complaining about the car not working and asked rhetorically, do you think it's the carburetor? as if she knew what a carburetor did. But that was a big word. It could have been the carburetor. And in fact, it might have been the carburetor back in those days. But it would have had to take a number because our cars in those days had a lot of problems. 
But if I were to ask you, do you see the carburetor? You recognize it as a carburetor? Do you understand that's a carburetor? Yes. But does your mind understand a carburetor? No. You see, it's a fairly technical piece of equipment. Unless you know what you're doing. So he says in verse 4 that in their case, the case of these people who have a veil over the gospel, the God of this world has blinded their minds. They don't understand. They can't understand. And the reason they can't is because there's a veil over their mind. Those who do not see the gospel have their minds blinded It's not a question of seeing. You might ask somebody today, do you understand what I'm telling you about Jesus? Yes. You understand that Jesus is revealed as the Son of God? Yes. Do you you understand that Jesus died? We give them this list of facts. That he died in Jerusalem? Yes. That he... That he claims to rise again on the third day? Yes. I, I understand what you're trying to tell me. Well... Okay, if you believe these things, then you must be converted. You must be born again. No, because I believe these things, but I don't understand these things. I mean, I believe that you believe these are facts. I believe the facts as you have recorded them, but I don't believe them for myself because I don't understand those things. I don't get those things. I don't see the significance of those things, the necessity of those things. I don't agree that those things produce what you say those things produce. I know that's a carburetor, but I don't understand a carburetor. I know the gospel, but I don't understand the gospel. I don't believe the gospel. I don't understand the whys and the wherefores and the whatnots and the how comes of the gospel. So it's not just mentally getting facts. It is, if you will, mentally and emotionally embracing those facts with a seeing mind, an understanding mind. So he says here in verse 4, in the case of these who have the gospel veil, the God of this world has blinded their minds. They don't understand. That's why we say again and again that ultimately, and this is his point, is it not (coughs) at the end of chapter 3, that you are dependent upon God through his spirit. He concludes chapter 3 by saying, verse 18, We all with unveiled face beholding the glory of the Lord are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. For this comes from the Lord. This, This understanding that results in transformation comes from the Lord who is the Spirit. We are dependent upon the Spirit. You must be, as Jesus said in John 3, born of the Spirit. You must be. So the God of this world is competing against the true God. He is warring against the true God. And there are people who do not see the gospel because the gospel is veiled by blinded minds. Let us not minimize that as we 
share the gospel, as we evangelize others, as we think of the gospel for ourselves, God has given us seeing minds. I'm thankful day after day after day. I know you are as well. I trust you are. That God has opened our heart, mind, eyes, if you will, to see the truth and to embrace the truth and to not be confused, to not try to wade through the veil, the hiding of the gospel. The gospel is clear to us. We understand the glories of Christ. Thanks be to God. It ought to humble us today as we take the Lord's Supper. We are utterly humbled that this body and blood, that this blood of the new covenant would be shed for us and would be be plain to us that the gospel is not veiled in any way to us. We're thankful. Let us continue to share this gospel. Let us do whatever is necessary so that others may have the veil removed from their eyes, warring against the God of this world. There is a third thing, and we conclude here, verse 5. And that is that those who do see the gospel see it in the face of Jesus Christ. It's not insignificant here. He's going to use the phrase face of Jesus Christ. Why is that important? (laughs) Because as we just read at the end of chapter 3, what is the emphasis in chapter 3? It is a veil over the face of Moses. Do you see the glory of God in the face of Moses? Answer is yes. For a minute. To the degree that Moses was in the company of God, you saw the glory of God in the face of Moses. But Moses' glory is fading away. But the Bible declares that God, verse 6, who said, let light shine out of darkness. Where is that found, by the way? Where did God say that? Let light shine out of darkness. That's Genesis 1, 3. That is the third verse in the entire Bible. Let light shine out of darkness. In other words, who's in charge? His point is, who's in charge of light? Who's in charge of ending darkness? Who's in charge of commanding darkness to go away? From the jump, it's been God. Who's sovereign over the darkness? Who has light for your life and for others? Who has the true glory, the true power, the true strength? Who has that? Only God. For God, who said in Genesis 1-3, let there be light, and there was light, he has said, he has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God, not in the face of Moses, but in the face of Jesus Christ. So we're not looking to a man like Moses or a man like you or me, but we're looking to God who gave his only begotten son and he has declared him. This is the witness of God in John 
chapter 1, verse 14 and following, he says these words. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. Jump down to verse 16. And from his fullness we have all received grace upon grace, for the law was given through Moses. You know who Moses is? He's the guy who was in the company of God, and his face shone brightly, but it went away. For the law was given through Moses, but grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. No one has ever seen God, the only God, who is at the Father's side. He has made him known. So who is the Son of God? Hebrews 1, 3 says he is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. He upholds the universe by the word of his power And after making purifications for sin, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. In Colossians 1 and 15, he is the image of the invisible God. He is the firstborn of all creation. He is the Son. Psalm 2 says, kiss the Son. The Bible never invites us to kiss one of the prophets. nor anyone else for their access to God. But the Bible quickly declares they were to look to Jesus and were to love him and to thank him because he alone gives us eyes to see and understand. No veil. No more dying, only life made possible by his grace and truth. I trust today that you know him and you're looking to him and hoping in him. There's no other name given among men whereby we must be saved. Let's pray together. Lord, we thank you for your kindness to us. In the person of your son. Who are we that you would give your only begotten son for us. Thank you. Thank you. We rejoice in Christ our savior. We rejoice in your tender mercies. We thank you for the promise of eternal life. Not found in ourselves. But found in the work of your son. So it is because of Christ. And by Christ. And through Christ. As the choir sang this morning that we have eternal life. We rejoice in you today. In Christ's name we pray.